Before we look to God's word, let's ask him to guide us by praying. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit here among us into our presence, into our midst, to guide my lips, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, so that we might hear your word. And in hearing your word, we might see the Son and see the work he has done for us and see our appropriate response to live out gospel-led, gospel-driven, gospel-centered lives in light of what he has done for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Much of the Bible turns on moments of uncertainty. Much of the Bible turns on moments of great drama. Tense moments when there is question about what is going to happen. Children are promised And then women are barren, and there is a drama. Will God deliver on his promise? Children are promised, and then Isaac is taken up the mountain to be sacrificed. How will God honor his promise in that moment? It's amazing how many books of the Bible open with that same question. What's going to happen? The book of Exodus opens with the death of Joseph. What's going to happen? The book of Joshua opens with the death of Moses. Now what's going to happen? The book of Kings opens with the death of David. Where do we go from here? And if you think about it, to some degree, the book of Acts that we have been studying this past year, It opens with the the assumption, the ascension of Jesus. And there is that drama. Now what? Now we are on our own. The one who has been leading us these past three years is gone. What happens next? For the next few weeks, for what remains of the summer, we're going to set aside our study in the book of Acts and look instead at the book of Judges. Lord willing, we will return to Acts sometime in the fall and and pick up and hopefully complete that study. But now we're going to look at the book of Judges, a book which also opens at a critical moment in the juncture of the history of God's people. Uh, uh, Joshua has died. Joshua is dead. Where do we go from here? Now what do we do? And to help us understand the significance of that, let me point out at least two things to you. One, no one alive at the time that these events occurred, here in Judges 1, and that's where we're going to be looking in a moment if you want to open your Bibles there to Judges 1. Here in Judges 1, no one alive in these events can remember a time before Joshua. None of them can remember when the the leadership of Israel did not include Joshua. For you'll recall that all of those who predated Joshua died in the wilderness. So we've had the 40-year wilderness wandering during which Joshua was a leading figure. And then we've had the 40-ish years of the book of Joshua in which he was the leading figure. And now we come to his death. And the question is, can the people of God go on without Joshua? And if so, what will that look like? 
And then the other fact you've got to know is this. We tend to think of the book of Joshua as the account of the conquest of the promised land. But that really is romanticizing the book of Joshua in a way we ought not to do. For it's extremely clear, both at the end of Joshua and at the beginning of Judges, that the land is not conquered. The conquest is not complete. Joshua simply got the things going. He showed them how to do it, what to do. But the land is not conquered. And you saw from our Old Testament reading that the land was not being given to the people because of how great they were, how wonderful the Israelites were. But rather it was being given because of how sinful the Canaanites were. That the full measure of their sin had been reached and it was a time for God's judgment to come upon the earth. You know, the church today tends to ignore a book like Judges, and that's one of the reasons. We're uncomfortable with the, 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 the death, the violence, the, the, the bloodshed. It makes us queasy. It offends our Western sensibilities. And yet we must hear it. There's a scholar in the mid-20th century named Meredith Klein, and Dr. Klein, one of the things he said, one of the things he talked about, he used a phrase, intrusion ethics. And he talked about the fact that we get comfortable with God's common grace. The fact that sinners are not immediately struck dead, we begin to think, well, that's just the way it is, that we're allowed. A certain amount of sin is tolerable. A certain amount of sin, it's okay with God. But then every once in a while, the ethic of the end, the ethic of final judgment, intrudes into the present tense. And many of the stories of the book of Judges are of that nature. The final ethic, the true ethic, God's real opinion of sin intrudes into our present period of grace and it offends us. Imagine that. And rather than recalibrating our view of sin, we ignore books like Judges. But the question of Judges, the question of can the people of God move forward in uncertain times Joshua is dead. Tomorrow will be the first time I have had to wake up and wonder, what are we going to do now? And in uncertain times, can the people of God continue to advance his kingdom? Can they continue to move the ball down the field? Can they continue their gospel calling? That's the question. And what we're going to see these next several weeks as we look at different selections from the book of Judges <clears throat> is examples of when and how that happens and when and how it fails miserably. And we glean from it lessons of how to live gospel-centric lives. There is perhaps no summary of the gospel that is more concise, more efficient than that found in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, there, the, the Bible is full of the gospel from one end to the other, but Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 summarizes the gospel in a way that I don't know that any other passage does. <clears throat> and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. 
That's the book of Exodus. Exodus is those two verses played out on life's stage. Think about it. For it is by grace you have been saved. Did the people free themselves from Egypt? Did they conquer the armies of Pharaoh? Did they rise up and overthrow the bonds of slavery? And did God come and rescue them because of how good they were? It's interesting when you look closely at the story, how the burning bush, Moses has to say, you know, how, whom shall I say has sent me and how will they know? He's not sure that people are going to know who the true God is. He's worried about whether or not they'll know their true God. They're not that good. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Exodus is the gospel's initiation and execution. God has come to set you free. Believe it and get up and walk out of your life of sin. Believe it and get up and move away. Repent. Turn away from what you were in and move forward. And if Josh, uh, sorry, if Exodus is the, the uh, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 played out on life stage, then Judges is Ephesians 2, 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we might walk in them. In other words, the gospel doesn't end with salvation. Remember, it's the power for living. It's the power to live out the, the, the spiritual life, the spirit-led life. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And that's the question of the book of Judges. Having been set free, having received the gift of God's grace, now how do you live life? How do you live it out in practical ways in this world. Judges chapter 1 divides really neatly into two halves. Verses 1 through 18 and verses 19 through 36. Exactly in the middle. Precisely dead center in the chapter. 18 verses in the first half, 18 verses in the second half. And as we consider it this morning, there are different ways we could have titled these two halves of Judges 1. One possible title for the first half of Judges 1 would be success, in which case the second half would be success. Judges chapter 1, part 1 is success, all capital letters, at least two exclamation points. The second half of Judges 1 is success, capital S, all lowercase, no exclamation points. Or perhaps... You could look at the two halves and say the first part is great job. And the second part is great, a job. <laughs> or the, what I chose for the outline, if you picked that up at the back this morning, I think Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is well done. And the second half of the chapter is, well, we're done. Well done. And, well, we're done. 
Let's take a look at Judges 1 in light of those things. Let me read the first 18 verses. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, and by the way, the author is using the names of these individuals to speak of their whole tribe, all those who have descended from them. These men are long dead. Okay, Just note the, 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 the metaphor being used here. Uh, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I like, likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Now the Lord Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Aiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave Aksa his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Canaanite, Moses' father, all went up with the people of Judah from the city of the uh, uh, Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev uh, near Ered. And they went and, and settled with the people. And Judah with, his, with Simeon, his brother, I'm sorry, and Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited uh, Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ascalon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. The first half of Judges 1, exactly half of it, 18 verses of it. I've entitled the section, Well Done, for it is a, a story of the success of the people of God. Let's look more closely, though quickly, at some of these successes. What do we see there? First, we see this. The well-done gospel life is lived in light of God's word. The well-done gospel life is lived in light of God's word. What do we see there in verses 1 and 2? Uh, uh, no sooner has Joshua died... And the people inquired of the Lord. Then the Lord said, and they did it. 
The first thing we have to recognize in this book, which is going to outline how to live the gospel life, the first thing we have to recognize is that the gospel life, the well-done life, lives in light of God's word. That's where it begins. We're not sure what the future holds. We're not sure what today holds. Joshua is dead. We're not certain what to do, but this we know. When in doubt, run to God's word. When in doubt, run to God's word. When I taught chemistry, there was a certain amount of mathematical operations that were routinely a part of what we did in the chemistry class. And there was one step that almost every problem involved. You remember those things from your chemistry class called moles? One of the things you had to do was convert to moles. And I used to tell my students, when you don't know what to do, convert to moles. When in doubt, convert to moles. They would come up to me and say, I don't know what to do. And I said, then you know what to do. They would look at me and I said, what is the thing? When in doubt, what do you do? Oh, yeah, convert to moles. So you're never in doubt. When in doubt, you're no longer in doubt. When you're not sure what to do, you know what to do. And that's the message here. When in doubt, run to God's word. When you're not sure about what the future holds, go to God's word. When you're not sure about who the earthly leader ought to be, look to God's word. When in doubt, run to the word of God. The well-done gospel life is lived in light of God's word. The well-done gospel life is lived in the community of his saints. It's lived in the community of his saints. You notice verses 3 and 17. In verse 3, we have the tribe of Judah saying to the tribe of Simeon, will you come and help us? Can we together take this for the Lord? And then we see in verse 17 the reverse, that Judah goes and helps Simeon in its conquest. Can we do this together? There is no place in all of the scriptures for anything resembling a Lone Ranger Christian. The Christian never goes it alone. There is never a time in the scriptures where Christians are on their own. We see it routinely in the book of Acts. Large crowds come and they hear the gospel preached. Peter preaches powerful sermons. And many believe, then what's the little comment we've seen several times in the book of Acts? And they were added to the number. They were incorporated in the church. They were brought in. They were made part of the fellowship. And one of the things we see here at the opening of Judges is their success when the community of the saints work together. On a personal level, we need to be connected and helping one another. Some of you are wonderful at the various social media that are available nowadays. Are you using it to help your brothers and sisters in the Lord on a personal level? Are you encouraging when you can encourage them? Are you being judicious with the thumbs up and the likes? Imagine a scenario like this where your sister in the Lord, a friend of yours, comes to you and says, I noticed you used to like, you used to give a thumbs up to my post, and and you haven't lately. Did I do something to offend you? Oh, no, you didn't do anything to offend me. I'm just not sure that we should be celebrating all of those pictures. Why not? 
Because it looks to me like you're plastered drunk in a few of them. And that's not something I can like. That's not something I can thumbs up. And if you're having a problem with alcohol, sister, I'd like to help you. I'd like to come alongside. What a beautiful opportunity to be the community of Christ and to conquer sin together. We gather together in corporate worship for a reason. And perhaps there can be ways that even churches could work together. This one becomes difficult, no question. There are many who call themselves Christian who are not Christian. And so there is great discernment that needs to be had. By the way, I'd recommend a book. I don't often recommend books from the pulpit, but here's one I would recommend. J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. $12 on Amazon. I just checked this morning. It's available. Great little book. It's like 106 pages or something. It's not very long. Written 110 years ago. Feels like it was written yesterday. It's an excellent book. And it helps you to discern between that which calls itself Christianity and isn't, and that which is true Christianity. We need to be very wary of those who call themselves Christians but are not. But we need to be arm in arm with those who are truly Christians, even if they don't look exactly like us, even if their doctrine doesn't match ours perfectly. We need to figure out ways to join with our brother Simeon and help him conquer the land the Lord has given him. The well-done gospel life is lived in light of God's word. The well-done gospel life is lived in the community of his saints. And the well-done gospel life is lived in complete obedience. Did you see verse 4 and verses 8 through 10? Um, uh, uh, verse 4, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Parasites and the uh, uh, Parasites, I don't know, maybe, into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. No other place in here are numbers given. Why is this number given? Well, in Scripture, uh, uh, a thousand is a, a, a lot, many. It's a big number. Like, I use bazillion with my children. That's how the Scriptures use the word thousand. This is 10,000. Baz- bazillion of them were slain is the point. A whole bunch of them. The idea is that it was complete and total victory, even to the point where they chased down the leader and took him also. They didn't quit. And then in verses 8 through 10, we see more of that. Similar comments about the the, the success. And the men of Judah fought against. And in verse 9, afterwards the men of Judah went down and they continued to attack. And then in verse 10, and the men of Judah went against the Canaanites. See this, this rhythm of they kept at it, they kept at it, they kept at it. None of the sinful influence of the Canaanites was going to remain. They were going to pursue sin in their midst to the uttermost. This point will become more clear by contrast in a few moments. The well-done life is lived in light of God's word. The well-done life is lived in community. And the well-done life is lived in complete obedience. Finally, the well-done life is blessed by God. Do you notice the two strange stories woven into here? That, that story of the thumbs and big toes being cut off of Adonai Bezek? What a bizarre story to include. And then the story of the marriage of Othniel to Aksa. Why are those stuck in here? Well, the author of Judges is weaving them in to remind the reader 
that when we live out the life we're supposed to live out in obedience to God, God gives his blessing. There is the blessing of justice, of God's justice being on display and being glorified. You see what Adonai, Bezek, I have no thumbs. I cannot hold a sword or chuck a spear. I am worthless in battle. I can't even stand up because my big toes are gone. And there's nothing left for him to do but to wax philosophical. And in waxing philosophical, he realizes the irony, actually the justice of his situation. This is exactly what I did to others my whole life. And now the God of Israel has brought it to me. Has brought it upon me. And the story is woven in there to say, where God is in control, where God's people are following him and obeying him, God's justice will play out. And the enemies of God will pay a price for being God's enemies. And then he weaves in this story of joy. Caleb says, hey, there's a village over here that's going to be proved proved hard to conquer. And in fact, I believe it's going to be so hard that the one who does it will clearly be marked out by God as a special man among his people. So special that he'll be worthy of my daughter. And Caleb says, if you can take that city... I'll give you my daughter, Aksa. And Othniel, who we are going to find out, turns out to be a special man in God's eyes. Othniel says, and now she's worth fighting for. And there's a story of joy here. And Othniel says, I'll take it. And he does. And Aksa turns out not only to be uh, uh, pleasing from a distance that Othniel was motivated to do this, but now he's marrying her, taking her, and he finds out she's a great blessing. She's wise. For she says, it's not enough just to have land if we don't have any water. What good is a big sandbox going to do us? And she says to her dad, give us springs also. So in the midst of this, when you live out a gospel life, when the people of God live out the, uh, on earth the way they're supposed to, live in light of his word, when they live in community and fellowship with one another, when they live in complete obedience, then there is great blessing. Blessings of justice and of joy. Judges chapter 1, part 1, verses 1 through 18 is the well-done life. Let's look now at the second half of the chapter. A half I've entitled, well, we're done. Starting in verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. Starts off strong, but notice. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Let me pause there for just a moment. We're done on this earth when earthly obstacles get in the way. We're done on this earth when earthly obstacles get in the way. Did they not have chariots before? Well, of course they did. They've had these chariots all along, and there's been victory, and there's been winning, and the people of God have been conquering. But all of a sudden, they can't do it because of the chariots? And the message of the author of Judges is a message not about God's power. He says God was with them. And they still couldn't do it. We have only two conclusions we can draw at that point. 
Either our God was not capable of overthrowing iron chariots, and if that's the case, let's close the book, close the doors, lock it up, and go home. For if he cannot overcome iron chariots, he cannot overcome COVID, and he cannot overcome the injustice of this world, and he cannot overcome my sin, and he cannot overcome death. God was with them, and they could not overcome the iron chariots because God was not able? No, because they didn't move forward in faith. Because they didn't march out with confidence. Because they fell back into the old pattern. You know why the names Joshua and Caleb play a role in this first chapter? Because some 80 years earlier, it was Joshua and Caleb who, as spies, went to the land and said, we can take it. God is with us and we can take it. And everybody else said, oh, no, we can't. We can't do it. And the contrast here is now they're falling back into that old pattern. They got chariots. We can't go. There's no point even going into battle with them. When the obstacles of this earth stop us, we're done living out the gospel life. Then notice, we keep reading here, and picking up again in verse 20, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses has said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Notice the contrast between Caleb, the faithful one, and the others. But not, verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived there with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. And the, uh, Verse 24, and the spy saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them into the way of the city. So God has provided a spy to give them a backdoor access to the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, and they let the man and his, and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. That is the name to this day. Verse 27. Now, wait a second. You might miss this if you're not familiar with the tribal arrangements in Israel. We just heard a story about the, 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 the descendants of Joseph and their success. And now it says Manasseh. This is still the same people. Manasseh and Ephraim were the two half-tribes descended from Joseph. Manasseh and Ephraim were the two sons of Joseph. Joseph got a double portion in the inheritance. Each of his sons got their own tribal land. Manasseh is the same group, but notice what we say now. But Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Verse 33, uh, 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 Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Notice the pattern. Notice what's going on here. Two things to notice. One, notice they're now working in individual tribes. In the first half of the chapter, we had Judah and Simeon working together to conquer. Now we have each tribe on its own doing its own thing. They have broken the community of the people of God. They're no longer working together. And when we are a fractured people of God, we're done. We're done. Notice also, they did not drive sin fully out of their midst. Notice the account of Manasseh. They took the people, they, they, they conquered the Canaanites, 
but they didn't drive them out. These Canaanites have some value. These Canaanites have some worth. Why would we get rid of them? We've conquered them. They're now our slave labor. They can haul wood for us and haul water for us and build our building. Why would we get rid of such a benefit? They're valuable. We will be a stronger nation. We'll be a better people of God if we just properly steward the Canaanites. God had told them to get rid of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were sinful. Their sin had risen to its full measure. It was a stench in the nostrils of holy God. And God said, they're done on this earth. Wipe them out. And rather than trusting God's opinion of sin, the people of God decided they had a better way to go. And they did not kill them. We're done when we let earthly obstacles like iron chariots get in our way. We're done when we are a fractured people of God, each trying to make it on our own. And we're done when we will compromise with the world and allow sin to live in our midst. We're done. So Scott, it's a great sermon on moralism. You have just said that we just got to live a good life and everything will be okay. Where's the gospel in that, Pastor? Let's keep reading. I'm not at all thrilled that the chapter breaks at this point. Let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but you shall become, but, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Two things you have to understand. First, you have to understand who this figure is, the angel of the Lord. I won't take time to develop it fully. Uh, if you grab the sermon notes on your way in, or you can grab another copy on your way out, on the back side is some discussion of the angel of the Lord. But in brief, let me say this, that the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, and she calls him God, and the text does not correct her. The angel of the Lord appears in the burning bush to Moses, and he worships the angel of the Lord and is not corrected for doing so. The angel of the Lord will appear in chapter 6 of Judges to Gideon, and Gideon will worship. The angel of the Lord will appear in chapter 13 to the parents of Samson, and they will worship the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears to David in 1 Corinthians 26, and he worships the angel of the Lord. And then in Zechariah, the angel of the Lord appears there, and two interesting things happen. One, he has authority over God's heavenly servants... And they give account. They're accountable to the angel of the Lord. In chapter 1 of Zechariah, and then chapter 3 of Zechariah, the angel of the Lord is the mediator of salvation. I'm not going to develop it fully. Let me say this. 
it is almost unanimously agreed that the angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus, the mediator of the covenant, the one who gave his life for the gospel, the one who set them free from Egypt, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, who brought salvation to them, and he stands before them and condemns them. And how and why does he do so? In covenant language. For I made a covenant with you, and you have broken it. This is the gospel message. That Jesus is the one who brings salvation. And it is Jesus who makes a covenant with us. And it is Jesus who convicts. And Jesus who condemns. And Jesus who will one day judge all people. And he stands before the people of God and says, I set you free. I gave you your freedom. I gave you life. I set you free from Egypt. I set you free from your sin. And you can't live in honor to me. You can't live in my word. You can't live in the community of my saints. You can't live in full obedience, then you will pay the price. You will be dragged down by the gods of this world. You know, we tend to think that the gospel requires nothing of us. But the gospel requires nothing of those who are lost. The gospel requires nothing of those who are dead in sin. The gospel requires nothing of those who cannot do anything. But it requires everything of those whom God has saved. Those whom he has called out. Those whom he has made his own. And the contrast of Judges chapter 1 is a contrast between those who were willing to give all in service of a gospel life and those who were not. Those who wanted to hear their Lord say, well done, and those who were willing to say, well, we're done. And the question before you and me, individually, as families, as a church is this question here. Do we want to live out the gospel? Do we want to possess the land and have uh, 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 Jesus reign over it? Do we want to conquer the sin in our midst? Do we want to live in community? Do we want to live in his word? Or are we content to skate through Snatched out of the fire, but of no good beyond that. The book of Judges is going to show us both ways. Back and forth, back and forth. How to live lives full of the gospel to the glory of God. And how to live lives that look nothing like the gospel to the shame of ourselves. We don't look to do this to make Jesus like us, we don't look to do this so that he will pat us on the head 
It's because he has liked us, because he has loved us, because he has died for us, because he says, I set you free and made a covenant with you. How do we not respond to that with the fullness of heart? With Judges, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Jesus, lead us into lives that live fully in light of all that you have done for us. Drag us out of the entanglements of our sin. Drag us into lives lived fully in your word, in your community, and in obedience to all that you have called us. Lord, give us bravery to face the iron chariots of our day. Give us wisdom to work with our brothers and sisters. Give us faith to obey you fully and to put away the sin of this world. We pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.